Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. And um, uh, as Nengi said, we are continuing our series in the book of Proverbs, which is an ancient book full of practical wisdom for how we can live a life of flourishing as our creator intended. And today I'm speaking on the subject of mastering your appetites. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no wonder no one else in the team wanted to do this talk. There you go. So I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear the word appetites, uh, probably food, drink, that sort of thing. Um, all of us are physical beings. All of us have appetites. Maybe you're experiencing an appetite right now. Um, if you're not, I can guarantee you will be experiencing the appetite of hunger by the time I finish this talk in about four hours. So all of us, <laughs> you think I'm joking, now, all of us have appetites. All of us are physical beings with longings and desires for uh, these appetites to be fulfilled in various ways. And food and drink are the ones that immediately come to mind. And Proverbs has a lot to say about those things. But actually, there are a whole load of appetites. I think appetites uh, include things like our longings for influence or relationship, intimacy, sex, these sorts of things. And according to the Bible, these appetites are largely positive. God created us as physical beings with physical desires. He created us to enjoy and to have our senses stimulated by uh, pleasing aromas and flavors and textures and latte art. And these are God's good gift to us. The more Instagrammable, the better. We are wired to enjoy these things. And Proverbs is largely positive about our appetites. Proverbs 5 talks about sex within a faithful, lasting marriage as being a good gift. Proverbs 13 talks about God blessing the righteous so they can eat to their heart's content. Proverbs 3 says food and wine are good gifts from God. It's not in Proverbs, but maybe it should be. Benjamin Franklin said, beer is proof God loves us and wants us to be happy. I have never seen you so. I could do a ministry time right now. You're full of the joy of the Lord. As long as it's good craft beer, that I should say. So if our, um, if our appetites are largely positive things, then why do we even need to master them, you may ask. Next slide. This is Jenny Holzer, the American conceptual artist. Her work is fascinating. She specializes in taking slogans and thought-provoking phrases and presenting them in public in order to get people thinking, often on architecture or billboards or LED screens. One of her most powerful pieces was this enormous LED screen in New York's Times Square bearing the simple sentence, protect me from what I want. I find that fascinating, dare I say prophetic. It's eerie. It's this sense that we all know, if we are honest, that we have these appetites and largely they are good, but there are times when we need protection from ourselves. We need protection from our own desires. And this being in a place like Times Square is poignant. This place that is full of adverts, demanding more, 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 stirring up our appetites, wealth and, uh, and consumerism and commercialism, all taking place in this in this one place, and there's this desperate cry from a tired city, protect me. I need protection from myself. I think all of us would recognize, if we are honest, that there are times when our appetites, though good, they sometimes get the better of us. Sometimes we find ourselves at the mercy of our own appetites. And I think the teaching of Proverbs, and my contention is, is this, we need to rule our appetites or they will rule us. And I want to look at three principles that we see that help us to know how we can begin to master our appetites. There are many things we could say. I just want to focus on three. And I want to look at the battle, the weapons, and the power. 
The battle, the weapons, and the power. And we'll begin with the battle. Because as I've said, our appetites are largely good things. They're part of the ways that God has wired us, but they can also become twisted and corrupted. So Proverbs 9, we've referred to this before in this series. It's this beautiful depiction of wisdom inviting us to eat at her table. She lays this table and it's full of good meat and good wine. It's appealing to our senses. This is a picture of God appealing to our appetites to draw us to him. But a few verses later on, you also get this character of folly, foolishness, who also lays lays a table inviting us to come and eat. And her food tastes good at first, but leads to our demise. And this idea is not just found in Proverbs. Actually, right through the Bible, we get a sense that there are these two forces vying for our hearts, vying for our appetites. Wisdom, God trying to draw us to himself and other things trying to draw us away in a way that will lead to our downfall. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates the first human beings, physical creatures with physical appetites. He puts them in a physical garden with trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food. That is, they satisfy our hunger, but also they're just stimulating. They're not just boring, bland things. God knows that aesthetics matter to us. He appeals to our senses. So he created us with appetites and with the things that we need to meet those appetites. And Eden, I think, is a picture of humanity working as it was meant to, everything in its proper place. You have the creator and you have the creation. And there's a distinction between the two of them. You've got the giver and the gifts. And the creator is God. And though the creation is good, it is not God. There is a difference between them. See, God is infinite and creation, these things that we can turn to to meet our appetites, they are finite. So therefore, it follows that we can find ultimate fulfillment in our creator because he is infinite, but we cannot find ultimate fulfillment in these created things. We find temporary fulfillment in them, but we cannot find our ultimate fulfillment in them because they are fleeting, because they are finite. And we know this. We are designed to find our ultimate fulfillment in the creator, not in creation. Created things will will, uh, quench our appetites for a moment, but it's temporary. We know this. You eat a good meal, you have hunger, you eat a meal. No matter how good the meal, how many Michelin stars the chef may have, three hours later, you're going to be hungry again. Let's face it, 20 minutes later, many of us will be hungry again. Like Our appetites are temporary. They're good things, but they can't take the place of God. We cannot find ultimate fulfillment in anything less than the infinite creator. So we were created to enjoy the gifts, but seek our ultimate fulfillment in God. I know I quote this from Augustine all the time. You probably recite it without me even saying it, but I think this is a brilliant quote. And actually, the whole of Augustine's Confessions is is a brilliant book for understanding how our appetites work. He prays at the beginning, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That is, we have these deep longings that can only be fulfilled, not through uh, temporary, finite things, good though they are, they can only be fulfilled through relationship with God. So God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden, trees that are appealing to all their senses and good for food. He says, you may eat from any of these beautiful trees. Eat to your heart's content. Just trust me on this one. Not that one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from that, it will lead to your demise. What happens next? It says the serpent came to Adam and Eve and says, "Ah, ignore what God said. That won't lead to your death. Actually, it will do the opposite. If you eat that fruit, you will become like God. And the essence of the temptation is this. You can do without God. 
You can find the ultimate fulfillment that he promises through this temporary finite thing. In fact, if you eat that, you can become like him. Our appetites have made that very same promise since that day. See, our appetites are good, but they're not content with being good. They want to be God. They want to take that place in our life that should be set aside for him. So they promise us ultimate satisfaction that they cannot deliver. They give us temporary satisfaction, which leaves us disappointed. And when, we're, when it's done, when it's gone, we're just left hungry again with no choice but to go and search for another way to meet that appetite. The band Florence and the Machine have a song called Hunger, and in it, Florence sings this. I thought that love was in the drugs, but the more I took, the more it took away, and I could never get enough. I thought that love was on the stage. You give yourself to strangers. You don't have to be afraid. And then it tries to find a home with the people. But no, I'm so alone and picking it apart and staring at your phone. And then she sings this phrase over and over. It's haunting. We all have a hunger. And I think all of us, if we're honest, would be able to look back at times in our lives where we have sought to fulfill our hunger through temporary things and have been left disappointed. Because sometimes the more we take, actually the more it takes from us. Why? Because we were designed to have our eternal longings met in an infinite being. And when we try and find ultimate fulfillment in finite things, they simply cannot bear the weight of all our longings and hopes and expectations. They disappoint us. And what do we do? We just go back for more and we're never satisfied. And Proverbs is full of examples of this. I could go to countless verses, just one chapter. Proverbs 23, I'll paraphrase it. It says, Beware if you have a tendency towards gluttony because food is deceptive. Don't join with those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat for at least a poverty and ruin. Don't be fooled by wine that looks dazzling and beautiful in the cup and it goes down smoothly because then it will become like a poisonous snake within you. I don't think it's a coincidence it's a snake, the same creature there in Eden. It'll mess with your mind. It'll make you feel seasick. You may feel invincible for a moment like no one can hurt me, but you wake the next morning covered in bruises and think, where do I get another drink? We all have a hunger. And our appetites are not content with being good. They want to be God. So here's a question. It's not a question I want you to answer to me right now, but it's a question to ask yourself. Are there areas of your life where you know you are seeking ultimate fulfillment in finite things? Let me put it another way. Where do you turn when you're having a bad day? Where do you turn first when you're having a bad day? What's your natural impulse? Is it just to think, oh, I, I need a drink, or I'm just going to eat that sweet thing, or I'm going to indulge in a little retail therapy to make myself feel better? All of those are good. They are good gifts. But Scripture says God is our comfort. He is an ever-present help. And often what we do, and I do it all the time, is I take those psalms, and for a moment it's like I take God out, and I think, yeah, a drink would do. And I run to them instead of to him. What are the areas where you are tempted to find ultimate fulfillment in finite things. The Bible says this is the essence of the human predicament, is taking something good and making it God. And it will never deliver on its promises. When we worship created things rather than our creator, we give power to them. And rather than us ruling them, they rule us. Let me put it another way, and then I'll get to some good news. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about this war that happens inside each one of us. It's a war between our spirit and our flesh. Now, to be clear, when he talks about the flesh, he doesn't mean this, like the physical body. A lot of people read Paul and think that Paul is really negative about the body, like it's just our spirits that matter because they're going to exist for eternity. That is not the case at all. 
Actually, Paul is clear that Jesus is going to return and renew all things and we will dwell for eternity with physical bodies in a physical creation. And he says it's because of that, because there is a future resurrection that it matters how we live now. So 1 Corinthians 15, he puts it really bluntly. He says, if there's no resurrection, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Like if there's no resurrection, what does it matter what we do? Just indulge all your senses. But Because there is this future hope that Jesus is coming back to renew all things, it matters what we do with our physicality now. So Paul talks about this war between our spirit and our flesh. And by flesh, he doesn't mean the body. He means our corrupted desires, our disordered desires, our corrupted appetites. And Paul argues that when you begin to follow Jesus, your spirit is made alive such that there is this part of you whose deepest, truest desire is to be with Jesus, be like Jesus, and find your rest in him. Your spirit longs for that above anything else. But there is also another part of you, the flesh, which is your corrupted desires, which longs for fulfillment in temporary things rather than in God. There's this war going on inside of you. And the goal of mastering your appetites is, in the language of Paul, to let your spirit win out over your flesh to get your deepest desires over those things that would take us away from God. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we win that battle? And I think that God provides us with a number of weapons or tools for fighting that battle. The first is perspective. The American pastor and author, John Mark Comer, says this, your strongest desires are not your deepest desires. I think that is really insightful. Your strongest desires are not your deepest desires. That is, there may be desires or appetites you have in a moment that feel so strong. It's like, I can't not give in to them. But strong though they may be, they may not actually represent your deepest, truest longings and desires. Let me put it like this. Who has ever experienced that phenomenon of buyer's remorse? Anyone? You know what I mean, right? It's that idea, some of you laughing, you've experienced it a lot, right? So it's that idea that you go and you buy something or like a meal or an item, often something more expensive than you normally would, and you sort of think, this is going to satisfy me. This is going to fulfill me. And then you get home and, and maybe you bought it because you watched an advert or there was a particularly good salesperson who pitched it to you and you get home and you're like, right, and you unbox it and you look at it and you think, why did I buy that? I don't want that. That is not going to deliver. And you feel stupid. How many people have experienced that? (laughs) I'm not going to ask you for examples, but I Googled examples yesterday, read these accounts. Some of them were hilarious, but also some of them a little bit too close to home. Like we all experience that because we all have these moments where we look at something and we think, yeah, that's going to fulfill me. And then in the cold, hard light of day, you realize it really isn't. I've overestimated this thing's ability to deliver what I truly want. Buyer's remorse. Now, what if you were to take that and scale it up to eternity? What if you were to get to the end of your life and look back over the whole of your life? I think there will be a whole load of things we would look at that felt so strong, so irresistible in a moment. Our strongest desires that really didn't represent our deepest desires in the cold, hard light of day. Proverbs 5 puts it like this. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You'll say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. From the perspective of the end of the life, you may well experience ultimate buyer's remorse. Perspective is so important. What if rather than waiting to the end of our lives, we were to be really clear day in, day out, 
What is it that is my deepest desire? What is the thing that I long for more than anything else? That at the end of my life, I'm going to say, that's what I was aiming for. And if I can keep that in my mind, if I can keep living with that perspective, it will empower me to make good choices in the here and now. The goal of self-mastery is to determine between our deepest desires and those that feel strong in the moment and prioritize the deepest ones over the strongest ones. To let the spirit win out over the flesh. Perspective is the first weapon. But there are two others we need to add to it. And they are self-control and self-discipline. And Proverbs has loads to say about these. I won't go through the verses now, but do take a look at them. But if I were to determine how these things are different, I think I would define them like this. Self-control is a decision made in the moment to not do something you want to do because you know it will not be good for you in the long run. Self-discipline is decisions made ahead of time to do something you don't want to do because you know it will be good for you in the long run. Do you see the difference? It's all about perspective. It's having a long-term perspective and then making decisions in the moment and in advance that will help us get towards that goal. Let me illustrate it. Self-control is saying no to that extra drink when it's offered because you know you've enjoyed it up to now. You've enjoyed the good gifts, but one or two more and you will start to compromise on things that really matter to you. Self-discipline is knowing yourself and knowing your limits so that ahead of time you can make a plan for how you will not be compromised. You see the difference? Self-control is realizing in the moment that TV show is going to take my thoughts places I don't want to go. It's starting to get too explicit or too violent or whatever it happens to be. That's not going to help me to reach my ultimate goal of being like Jesus, being with Jesus and finding my rest in him. Therefore, I'm going to change channels. That's self-control. Self-discipline is planning, knowing your weaknesses and planning in advance so that you won't be put in a vulnerable situation. And we need these three weapons, perspective, self-control, and self-discipline. They work together. Because perspective reminds us what we truly, deeply desire more than whatever feels strongest in the moment. We need to keep that front and center in our minds. Self-discipline is how we plan to get towards that goal. And self-control is how we make sure we're not tripped up along the way. And actually, I have found, and many people have found, the more you practice self-discipline, the easier self-control becomes. These are some of the weapons God gives us to help us. Be with Jesus, be like Jesus, and find our rest in him. Now, again, to be clear, my point is not we should eradicate all pleasurable things from our life. That's not the point. These are God's good gifts to us. The goal is that we don't allow the good things to become God in our lives. I like the way that G.K. Chesterton puts it. He says, we should thank God for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much of them. <laughs> that is, treat them how they are. Think of them how they are. They are good gifts but they are not God. David likes that one. <laughs> if we get those things in the wrong order and we begin to worship things that can't give us ultimate fulfillment, we will fall flat on our face time and time again. We'll give in to our strongest desires in a way that we'll regret and we may miss out on our deepest desires. If we can keep them in perspective, then we actually worship God by enjoying his good gifts without putting too much of a burden on them. So what does that look like in practical terms? Well, I'm not going to give you a list of rules, <laughs> um, you may be glad to know, partly because actually everyone's battle is different. And what self-discipline and self-control looks like for you may be completely different from what it looks like for me. But I would encourage you to ask yourself these questions and maybe talk about them with people that know you well and that you trust. What are the areas of greatest weakness or temptation for you? 
And how can you keep your appetites in perspective and grow in self-discipline and self-control so your spirit wins out against your flesh? And rather than grounding this in a list of rules, which I just don't think will be helpful, I thought maybe I should just take a moment to ground it in my own experience and tell you a little bit about me and my journey in this. So before I went to university, I knew that I was not great at self-control. And I knew one particular area that I really struggled with was my approach to alcohol. To be perfectly honest, I knew that was a weakness of mine. And it wasn't actually that I, uh, that I drank that regularly or even that I drank that heavily, certainly not compared to many of my friends. But I knew that in social settings, this was a real challenge for me, when I was around friends at a house party, something like that. And I knew that the reason I was often tempted to drink more than I was comfortable with and more that I then, and an amount that I then regretted in hindsight, the reason was because some of my friends had said to me, we like drunk Liam, he's way more fun. I know, right? <laughs> more fun than this. Um, <laughs> incidentally, if you start trying to ply me with drinks, I'm, I'm going to be quite suspicious. I want to see this fun Liam. No, you don't. So, but I, I was at a stage in my life where I, I was quite introverted. I still am. Uh, but I had this deep desire to be popular and to be liked and to be loved and to be thought of as different or more creative or, or whatever it happened to be. And people said, oh, I like drunk Liam. Why? Because he's less inhibited. He's more outgoing. And so I believed that and I thought, okay, if I am going to get happiness through being more popular and they're telling me this is a way you can get more popular, then I'm just going to go to these social situations and drink a bit more because that will be a way to get people to like me. And I really believed that. The problem was it never delivered on its promise because I would have a great night and then I'd wake up the next morning and I'd feel awful, by which I don't mean like hungover. I mean, that's empty inside, honestly, because I knew that I was kind of giving over myself to this substance in order to make me something that I wasn't. And then I wake up the next day thinking, the people may have liked this version of me, but they still don't actually like me. And so I'd feel more miserable and more fraudulent as a result. So I was coming to go to university, and I realized this was going to be a big problem for me. And at this time in my life, I'd been to church, but I didn't really have any peers my age. I had no one I really talked to about this. But I knew I needed to do something, because I would suddenly be in a situation where I wanted to be popular with all these new people. And, and I didn't think I had the self-control to deal with it well. So I decided when I moved to university, chance to rebrand, just tell people I don't drink. I mean, not like first thing, hi, I'm Liam and I don't drink. <laughs> but in social settings, I just, I would drink self-drinks. And most people never asked me about it, to be honest. And I was lucky I never experienced people pressuring me. Those two years, the first two years at uni, were some of the most formative years of my life. Not, it were, they were hard, but it wasn't actually the not drinking that was hard, because that wasn't my addiction. That wasn't my problem. My problem was my deep craving to be loved by others. And that was really difficult to deal with, particularly without this safety net that I used to have of just kind of loosening myself up through the substance. So for those two years, I really struggled with my identity. And the thing that changed me was this. I began attending a church where I saw people my age for the first time in my life who followed Jesus and who actually allowed their following of Jesus to change the decisions they made. This was revolutionary to me. I'd honestly never seen this before, not with people my age. They seem to have this sense of control. Rather than being controlled by other things, they seem to be content with who they were and able to make wise choices that I didn't feel I had the power to make. And that was fresh, and that was exciting to me. I wanted it. And during those two years, I came to know, I came to learn that there is a God who loves me and that all of my desires, my truest, deepest desires could be found in him. I heard that this God knew me more than other people did, more than I knew myself. And despite what he knew of me, he loved me. 
I, became, I, I began to learn that this God was not impressed by who I pretended to be. He accepted me as I was, but also he promised and he was committed to changing me to become all that I could be. And as I found my sense of worth and satisfaction and identity in him, I found that I started to develop self-control and self-discipline in areas I never had before. I began to feel this desire I didn't have before to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to find my rest in him. And so I found myself turning to things like worship and prayer and the scriptures with a new sense of passion. And as I chose to discipline myself to believe what God said over me, rather than seeking approval or validation anywhere else, I found that the power those appetites had previously had just dissipated over time. Such that I was then able to start enjoying a drink from time to time for what it was. Because I was no longer looking to that thing for something I was now finding in God himself. Now, actually, that wasn't just that area of my life that changed. Every area of my life changed as I surrendered my appetites to God. And that's not to say it's been easy since. I still struggle. I am still tempted time and time again to go to other things or other people for validation or comfort rather than God. Why? Because there's a war going on in me as it is in you between my spirit and my flesh. But I now believe that victory is possible. Why? Partly because I've experienced the life-changing power of Jesus and partly because I read the scriptures and I know that God doesn't just give us some weapons and go, well, over to you. He also gives us power. He gives us power to live the life he designed us to live. Proverbs 20 says this, who can say I've kept my heart pure? I'm clean and without sin. I can't. <laughs> None of us can. In fact, the, the irony is that if we try and do self-mastery in our own strength, self-mastery itself will become an idol. Because we'll think, I don't need God. I can do this in my own strength. I've got what it takes. We don't. And it will come crashing down on us. There is only one person in all of human history to whom Proverbs 20 verse 9 does not apply, and that is Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in every way just as we are, so he can empathize with us, but he, unlike us, was without sin. He went through every temptation, never once dined at the table of folly, never once let an appetite rule over him. Instead, he kept in communion with God as he was meant to. And the Bible says that there was something strange that happened at the end of Jesus' life. He went and he died a death he did not deserve to die. And in that moment, he was doing that on our behalf. And so Paul says that something strange took place at the cross where our flesh, our disordered desires were actually crucified with Jesus on the cross. Listen to these words. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Our old self was crucified with him so the body ruled by sin might be done away with so that we may no longer be slaves to sin. Paul says this part of us that wars against our spirit was crucified, was put to death with Jesus. But the story doesn't end there because Jesus' story didn't end there. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, showing his ultimate victory over even death himself. And Paul says, if we are united with a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We get to share in his life. And Jesus is coming back to make this world new. And one day, all who have put their trust in him, recognizing I cannot do this in my own strength, will spend eternity with physical bodies in a physical new creation. You know how the prophets talk about that day? Read Isaiah and Amos and Revelation and these beautiful prophetic passages. They talk about the new creation as a feast 
with good meat and good wine, but none of the temptation of our corrupted desires anymore. Why? Because we're eternally in the presence of God, finding our satisfaction in him. And the Bible says that is available for all who put our trust in him. New creation. So what? Does that mean we just have to wait till death and then it suddenly becomes easy, but there's no power now? No, absolutely not. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has started now. It's breaking into your body right now. He says, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the grave dwells in you. And if the power that overcame the grave dwells in you, you have power to overcome in the strength that God provides. He promises to give us the Holy Spirit. So listen to this, Galatians 5. And maybe the band can come back up. He says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. The acts of the flesh are obvious and he lists this whole load of them. Things that are our flesh, our corrupted appetites desire. He says, I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All the weapons we need to be like Jesus. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, past tense, with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit now, let us keep in step with the Spirit now and into the future. The good news is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, your flesh's days are numbered. They are on their way out and your spirit is being made alive. You are being transformed to be more like him. One day we will spend eternity with God, completely satisfied in his presence. All temptation, all sin gone forevermore. But in the here and now, he gives us power by the Holy Spirit to live a life of self-control. As we surrender our appetites to him, he changes us from the inside out so that we can enjoy his good gifts without making an idol out of them. We can enjoy his good gifts without them taking us away from our deepest desires of being with him, being like him, and finding our rest in him. I started by showing you that artwork from Jenny Holzer. What I find weird about that artwork is this. I don't know who that's directed at. I don't know who she is thinking is going to come and protect her from the things she wants. In one sense, it feels like a desperate cry. Maybe actually it's a prayer. It's not dissimilar from a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. God, I can't do this alone. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think this recognizes we cannot protect ourselves from what we want, but God can deliver us from our appetites. God can deliver us from them taking us away from our ultimate desires and finding fulfillment in him. This is a prayer and a cry for help. And it's a prayer that God loves to answer. So in a moment, we're going to worship. And before we do, I'm going to invite us to pray a prayer. And it's a prayer of confession and a prayer asking the Holy Spirit to fill us and empower us. And Proverbs actually says that if you don't confess your sins, you don't receive mercy. But by confessing, it actually kind of unlocks the mercy of God. So as we pray and confess to God and ask for his help, he will come and fill us with the Holy Spirit. I don't know where you're at today. It may be that there are particular challenges you're facing. You just know that area is not under my control. Bring it to God. 
Surrender it to him today. Ask for his strength and his power. It may be that the whole God thing is completely new to you and you're like, I've got big questions about that before I even get to any of that surrendering to God. Come and talk to us. We'd love to talk. I'll be here at the end. I'd love to talk. Answer your questions. It may be that you know you need some help beyond just praying. We'll have a prayer team at the end. We also have a pastoral support team. We run a number of courses like Steps or uh, Men's and Women's Recovery that help people get control over those areas so that they don't rule them. Come and speak to me or to any of the leaders here or go on the website. Find out more. Reach out for help. There's no shame in that. That's how we get the power of God to live new lives. It may well be, actually, that you have been exploring faith for a while And you're like, this just sounds great. I want that promise of new life. I want the Holy Spirit. Well, you just have to ask. And when we pray this prayer in a minute, that's not just a prayer for people who've been following Jesus for years, although it is that. It's a prayer that you can pray today as your first step of following him. And my encouragement is that you don't leave this place without speaking to someone today. Come and speak to me or a trusted friend or a member of the prayer team. But you can begin your journey with Jesus right now by praying this prayer. So I wonder if you'll stand with me And maybe we can have the prayer up on the screen. And if you are comfortable praying a prayer, asking for God's strength to fill you today, then I wonder if you will join me in this before we return to worship. Lord God, I confess that I have sought ultimate fulfillment in created things rather than in you, my creator. I recognize that they have not provided the rest for my soul that I can only find in you. Thank you that you loved me enough to give your life for me, dying for my sins and rising from the dead. I turn from my old self and choose to follow you. I receive your gifts of forgiveness and new life. Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me power to live a life in step with you? Amen.